Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to episode five of the Brand Builders podcast. You've got Tom Montgomery and Preston Rutherford, and here we are on this Monday morning. We today are going to talk about chapter 10 from Kellogg on branding in a hyperconnected world. Tom, how are you today? I am splendid. Um, and uh, thank you for asking. It's a nice sunny day here in Austin, Texas. And I'm excited to talk about building strong brands through advertising strategy in the online age. The it's the best. title of chapter 10 uh, here in Kellogg on Branding. And we thought particularly relevant because um, that's a lot of what we're trying to accomplish. Um, and when, when we talk to brand owners, a lot of times they're trying to figure out, okay, how do I use this? How do I tactically implement um, some of this wisdom on brand building um, in my own advertising? And so that's something that we've always liked Kellogg as a reference, um, Kellogg on branding as a reference. They've got this updated text for to add in a hyper-connected world. Um, it's really cool, really thoughtful, and um, presents some actionable tips and that's what we're hoping to share with some context today how are you yeah that's perfect i'm doing well thank you for asking <laughs> i am doing very well i look forward Good. to diving in on this <clears throat> and one maybe we could break the conversation down into a few of the buckets that i pulled out of the chapter and then maybe we could talk about some of the specifics that we enjoyed but we talk a little bit about the three C's, uh, I think in the context of brand evaluations, uh, competence, community, and contentment. We've got ideas around uh, virality. We've got ideas around how to use tight communities. We've got ideas around what successful creative is. And then we, we've got yet another tool for memory, the four M's, which we can get into as well. A lot, lot of good stuff, a lot of good stuff. I thought one of the interesting uh, predictions that they made that I thought was relatively spot on was, and I think they were maybe making this prediction back in 2016 or something like that, but uh, the projection that... Uh, at 245 billion, that uh, media advertising is projected to grow from 195 to 245 in uh, 2020. Uh, I looked it up, and I think it was exactly that. So digital, takeaway right? here, yeah. So the takeaway here for our readers is that the people who write wrote this book are uh, brilliant, and they can predict the future, which is good to know. So, but, uh, but the other piece that uh, was in students. there was, yes, exactly. The other piece though that was in there <laughs> was they massively underestimated, I think, seemingly the size of the social component, which I think yeah. is quite interesting. And I think we're all feeling how, how much the social component yeah. has become a really large part of what we're all doing. Yeah. They were sending it on banners. They were like banners of the future. <laughs> um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think it might be useful. So, so one of the things that we're really trying to accomplish in our conversations here is to present bits of uh, interesting, actionable insight for building brands um, 
with as much learning as we've got from our experience, but also trying to integrate kind of the best of what's known out there. And one of the one of the most important texts in kind of our our learnings um, as brand builders was Kellogg on branding. And so um, we're finding it like a really cool, useful exercise to go through individual chapters of this to present it to y'all um, in the case that you either haven't read it or wanted a chance to kind of um, uh, contextualize it or think about it through the lens of other brands because a lot of times this can come across as kind of textbooky speak. So yeah, this chapter um, kind of breaks down, I think, three, three components to this when they're talking about like uh, advertising in an online age. The first was um, insights. And so in insights, they talk about um, understanding consumers and things like that in the three Cs. Um, but really, they're they're kind of what they're going into is um, how do you build data prior to running your campaigns, and how do you understand what are the right things to hit on, and what are the right things to address. The second was uh, creative, and so how do you build creative that resonates, um, and what does resonating mean, and what do customers do with creative and things like that that I thought was really cool. And then the third was kind of distribution and media strategy. Um, so how to get it in front of people, how frequently to get in front of people, in what context, how do you target those audiences, that sort of thing. Um, and, um, and that's where the four M's came in and things like that. Um, so maybe we can review, we could start with step one, which was insights, the three C's. Um, so maybe you can kick that off, Preston, and walk through, walk, walk our dear listeners through, um, what that is and um, how you thought about that and how it applied to some of the things that you've seen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, yeah, the key for every listener is everything we talk about, you could leave the conversation with uh, specific implementation points or uh, action item. So uh, brand evaluations was one of the ways that this was uh, categorized. And aligning with motivations, I think, was one of the key things that was um, called out. So what does, what do the three C's mean? Look like there are three competence, community, and contentment. So it just went through a few examples here, but the the simplest thing uh, or the way to think about it is uh, the idea that competence helps you achieve your goals. So as you're interacting with uh, a brand, for instance, and you're uh, responding to or internalizing creative, how does it make you uh, feel? Does it help you feel like you can achieve your goals? Or from a community perspective, for instance, does it help you achieve goals, but not as an individual, but uh, as a community? And then from a contentment perspective, uh, does interacting with the product just make you feel good? Do you enjoy it? Um, like haagen ice cream, for instance, could be one example. Um, but then some interesting examples given uh, comparing haagen to Halo as it relates to maybe violating um, one of these ways that people view the haagen brand, for example, which is through the lens of uh, contentment, for instance. But we can get into that. But those were the three C's. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting because they, they talked about this in this like insight section. And so one of the things that they were um, emphasizing was it's really important for you as a brand to understand what your customers view you as or, or the, need, the, the problem you specifically solve, right? And so 
the example they have with Hagen Daz versus Halo Top was both were offering a similar product um, at the end of the day. Halo Top, like both a like kind of lower calorie ice cream offering. Um, Halo Top was this challenger brand where their brand was built around, um, I think, competence effectively. So their brand was all about getting stronger. And yeah, this this ice cream is going to beef me up, and I can have a good pint of it. And, and thus, any flavor for it is a bonus, right? Like it's us choking down protein shakes and being like, "Oh, this tastes terrible, but I bulk it up." Um, and so that was the brand that Halo Top had. And thus, when Halo Top came in and said, "Dude, this is only this many calories," people are like, "And it tastes so great! How awesome!" Whereas with Hagen Dazs, their brand was built off of great, amazing tasting, high fat, you know, ice cream. And thus, when they came out with Hagen Dazs Light, people were like, "This tastes like shit." Right. <laughs> uh, they compared it against Hagen Dazs and their previous perception of Hagen Dazs. And so then instead, when they reframed their next kind of lighter offering around taste and around how great it tastes, um, while it was still lower calorie and things like that, it did much better. It was basically the pitch. I thought that was interesting. And I felt like it emphasizes the degree to which we as brand owners not only need to understand who we think we are, but most importantly, understand who our customers believe we are. Um, and what they carry into any buying opportunity they have or branding opportunity they have is all of that contextual knowledge around here's who you are brand, here's the problem you solve for me, here's all the context I have on you and thus the comparison I'm gonna draw on any creative I see or uh, new products you release or whatever. I thought that was like a really cool concept. Totally. So what do you think someone who works at a brand right now or leads a brand or founded a brand can do with that maybe today or is there some kind of an action that they can take to your point in terms of learning more about how people view them so that they can get better at what they're trying to do or in steps two and three of what we're going to talk about today um, around the creative components um, getting attention or whatever that might be, but just it, as it relates to getting an understanding of how people are viewing you, which of the C's are maybe most relevant for you, how, how should someone think about an action that they could take to, to explore that or implement that in their business? Yeah, if I were a brand owner trying to think through how to understand how consumers perceive me, I would start with just the fundamental assertion that uh, that's an important data point, right? Mm -hmm. So like starting with, it's a data point I need to be thinking about as opposed to who do I want to be and who do we internally in our company think we are? What's most important is who do our customers think we are yeah. and what do they believe about us? Um, so I think that's an initial switch that's really important. Then once we've got that, let's go get some data. Um, and I think that data is coming through in a variety of ways. It's coming through in reviews, um, both your NPS scores and your product reviews. What you're looking for are these insights, not just into your products, but into um, how people feel about your business and your brand. Um, and so you're looking for what are the problem statements they're presenting? What are the things they're saying about you? Um, and what does that mean? Are you fitting more into competency, community, or contentment? Um, and are you a combination of those and in what way? Um, 
And then I would also go out to the social sphere, um, anywhere people are writing on, um, writing in any way about your brand. So either comments or mentions, that's really great fodder for understanding of how people perceive you in mass. Um, so that's where I would go to start. And then there are ways to get more and more sophisticated of, about that, more and more automated about that. But doing that with you know the executive team, spending a week cranking on that and coming away with some ideas of how people perceive them is really, really powerful. You don't have to spend any extra money on it. It just takes time. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Think? Yeah, I agreed. The mindset shift was the biggest one in just how we view what we do and what we're trying to... Um, trying to find the balance of things that we think need to exist in the world and the story who who we think we are and then how we're actually being received can be two quite different things so seemingly focusing only on one at the expense of the other can be problematic and yeah so i think just to your point that fundamental mindset shift and then it's exactly like what you said those those steps of then going out and finding some of that information seem seem essential. But outside of that, I have nothing useful to the audience to add. What I did, and it might be transitioning us into the next section, is one of the most one of the coolest things about this book is the great examples that we get from actual brands that have either tried something or something that happened to them, and then you see exactly whatever maybe the impact was on their sales. And I think one that was really interesting was how Tropicana did a quote unquote branding update where, I mean, you totally understand why they would do something like that. Someone somewhere in the organization's like, I got this really cool updated font, color scheme, etc. We got to modernize how we look and feel. And long story short, they updated the packaging and their sales dropped I think it was 20% in six weeks. That is just bonkers. Uh, so I think it harkens a little bit to what you were talking about earlier, Tom, just as it relates to previous conceptions and thoughts that we have about the brand and then how the things that are going out there today connect with in some form or conversate in some form with those things. But I just thought that was a really interesting example. That yeah. To me, it's just sort of like, sure, I guess I could see how you would want to modernize your brand and think that that is a rational thing to do. That's something that we want to do. And, but it, it seems like it um, violates what, it's kind of like to what we were saying, talking about, violates how the consumer views us. And then maybe also just forgets the fact that just we're very busy, light buyers. We make our buying decisions in instantaneous sort of like knee jerky sort of fashions and how violating that actually yeah. did matter. I thought that was a really interesting example. Yeah, they, um, I, I agree that Tropicana example is really cool. Like, and I think with, with the Tropicana carton change example, uh, it also reflects way more than just one person in the organization having this idea it probably represents the work of consultants it probably represents mm, the work of yeah. like research and studies that turn out to be completely misguided right so like who are we as Tropicana well we're bright and bold and, and you know I'm sure that they have been through like a bunch totally. of brand kits and a brand reset and all this stuff 
And it speaks to the risk of doing that in a misguided, non-iterative fashion where you don't understand why your customers are literally buying. Um, you may understand why they connect with the Tropicana brand and be able to iterate on that, but the reason why at the end of the day those customers were buying, which is really interesting, is because it was their habit to buy that exact carton. And so when they right. went to the store, they weren't thinking about how bright and cool and modern Tropicana was. They were like, I want to find that carton that looks exactly the way that I know it looks. And it's that logo, it's got the palm tree, <laughs> that's what I want, that's what I trust. And this, this notion of like habituality, system one thinking, it gets really, really codified around the things that you put forth. And thus when you change it, and that's the way people buy you, you lose it because they're like, okay, where did that carton go that I liked so much? They must not have it. I'm moving on to the next one. Right. And you know, oftentimes they said that people thought it was just a different brand. Like this is a new brand trying to rip off Tropicana, <laughs> my favorite, right. uh, which is nuts. Like all of that work and you have to go back to what you might have deemed this like outdated old logo that didn't speak to our current brand priorities. It's just how it speaks to how much we can fluff ourselves up. Um, and we've done it in the past too, but, um, but I thought that was really funny uh, of misunderstanding the exact reason why. And so maybe understanding some brand motivations, but like that moment, the reason why is because they recognize your package. Right, right, absolutely. The, the other one that was funny was yeah. um, they talked about uh, they talked about like context on <laughs> on uh, on tampons and mm -hmm. um, this is you know whatever we'll we'll see if we keep this in the final cut but um, I thought it was interesting the framing they had it was like they had one version of a tampon ad that was about safety and security. They had another version of this tampon ad that was like about movement and being on the go and how it connected with different audiences that were primed in different ways. Um, and I thought this like notion of not only just understanding your audience, but also psychological priming is a useful thing where like mm -hmm. even if your audience relies on you for, you know, let's say they, they understand you from the perspective of competence um, where safety is one form of being confident, but also so is being on the go and making moves. Right. Um, priming is useful and audience priming. So if you, if you set the example of, you know, we're all women on the, on the go trying to advance in our careers. And then the creative is oriented around, um, enabling that, that resonates more powerfully than if that was simply the initial presentation. And then similarly, if you prime, your media, like the, the actual creative pitch with um, the notion of security, protection, whatever, that causes more um, response. So I think this notion of like priming and, and combining actions is really interesting, particularly in a world of like, where maybe like traditional campaigns are going a different direction of like this campaign we've been using for 25 years and it's the literal same ad over and over. Um, where it's a lot more nuanced and there's a lot more facets to it, where if you're seeing the same content piece in social 190 times, you're not going to respond to it. But instead, if you're building this notion of this campaign is actually about safety and this is our core creative piece, but then we have a lot of other kind of elements around that to prime it. That was an interesting thought process. Um, totally. I don't know. What did you think? I wonder, <clears throat> the question that I had was... 
does that apply to a brand at any point in their life cycle or is that a a later thing i mean i guess it applies at any given time uh i guess i was just sort of thinking man that leads to some interesting potential maybe not complexity but that's that's sort of where my mind started to go but yeah i thought that was a really interesting example too and um yeah i like how you tied it to the the priming component of of the the specific uh i guess things that mattered i also don't remember if there was a, a connection to geography in the way that they were talking about those messages but that could have been a different example but um um yeah should we should we transition either to the creative components or to i guess the the uh, sort of like channel or distribution components yeah it's not creative we can just go in line yeah let's Why do it I, let's I do can it. Tee it up and then you can you can respond let's do it uh so the other really cool so the, the next section that we got into um in uh, chapter 10 was about creative and so okay now that we understand how people perceive us let's build creative that um that does a few different things. Uh, Preston, what were your big takeaways from that section? Uh, what were some of the key elements that stood out to you and, and how do you think about applying them for brands today? Yeah, so I thought that, and, and we talk about these themes quite often, but one of the ideas that I thought was somewhat interesting, or that at least that surprised me based on my understanding, was this idea of getting attention, but then also virality. And it seemed like, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts because maybe I was just off, that one of the points that was made was this idea that maybe there's an assumption that virality means on the social platforms, the vast majority of the distribution comes from people actually sharing that content on the social platform. But I think what it was saying is that in general, sharing happens where you've got five to 10 of your closest people and maybe you'll share with them, maybe via DMs or text message or verbally. But what really caused causes a lot of these pieces of content to get massive broad reach um, is this idea that it gets sort of like picked up or distributed in, in super, I guess, broad contexts, whether it be talked about on the news or picked up in a different sort of uh, social community like a Reddit thread or something like that uh, using the Dollar Shave Club example, I think is that. So, um, and that might be just sort of like attention that then manifests in amplification. But I thought that was just challenging one um, assumption that I had. And I think the reason it's meaningful to talk about or the applicability I think to action could be in thinking of the creative and having sort of like goals that guide the creative. I think maybe previously one of the things I thought was, okay, we've got to get people to share this. So what are the, what are the sort of mechanics that are going to allow people to sort of say, yeah, I'm going to share this with my friends in this particular way on Facebook or on Instagram. Whereas maybe the slight nuance from what I'm taking away from what I learned here 
was the idea should push myself to have a bigger idea because if the idea is big enough, it's less about getting just that incremental share in the feed. Not that that's bad, but if the true knowledge of how this is going to work uh, or the true method through which this is going to work is by broad distribution channels, picking this up and talking about this thing, then I, I would probably push to have sort of like a more notable or memorable um, idea in the creative. And so I think it's, it's maybe more of a nuance. I don't know if I can say, Hey, go have a, go come up with a bigger idea. But I just thought that nuance around virality and how things get distributed within the social contexts um, was slightly different from the way that I thought about it previously. I don't know what you thought about that or if there are some other concepts on the creative side that, that really stood out to you. <laughs> I don't know if you're on mute. It could just be my thing. Oh, <laughs> there you are. Um, so, um, yeah, in this chapter, they talk about how virality is counterintuitive. Um, where we all think about the concept of virality as like a disease spreading from one person to another 50 and those people spread it to another 50 and that's the way stuff goes viral. Um, and they basically said that's generally not the case. The way that stuff goes viral is uh, because people share con like these sorts of things with very few people, like you said, like zero to 10 sort of being the max of normal humans. Um, that's actually not the way that these concepts spread. They gave kind of two kind of, I thought, useful uh, mechanisms where virality is created. And one is this idea of broadcasting. So where somebody <laughs> big picks up your story. And so it's how can you build creative that Oprah wants to share or that mm, Reddit yeah. will blow up on or that a big Instagram handle will find benefit from sharing and getting to go viral, right? Like it changes the way you think about the sort of creative you want to build where it's not, I want that person over there to share with their three friends. It's, I want somebody big to basically find a reason to platform this idea and push this out to their following. And I thought that was tactically important. And I don't know whether it's a bigger idea or not, but it's something where mm. it's like, why is this useful for this targeted group of people of like the Reddit community or Oprah or, a, you know, some influencer that you're really jazzed about? How do I build content that makes them likely to platform it and people like them? Because when they share it, they're sharing it to millions of people as opposed to the right. traditional zero to 10. So yeah, they give the example of Gang Gangnam Style, <laughs> Dollar right. Shave Club, both having these different distribution mechanisms. Um, but they both went quote unquote viral because that was all free, that was all earned coverage. Um, the other one that I thought was really interesting in this capacity, and so tactically I would basically say like, okay, think about that as your target audience that you want to share and figure out what right. are the things that make them share that content. Um, and build content that tries to hit to hit on that. Um, and that looks a little bit more like, how do I get press, which is an interesting concept. Yeah. Um, the, the second, I thought, useful metaphor here was like, there are these pockets where people behave abnormal. They'll, sh they'll overshare. They'll talk to this community. And this is in these like kind of avid niche communities. So like bikers and runners and people who do Tough Mudders was another example they had. Yes. These are people where they'll overshare um, and where, yeah, maybe there's somebody you need to platform with, but they're probably more micro influencers, but really trusted. And it's a community that really wants to help themselves. So while normally 
I'm not sharing like random consumer products with my friends. Um, if I'm a really avid biker or really avid tennis player and I find something that worked for me, I'm going to be very vocal with that. And I thought that was extremely useful of thinking about can your product fit into some of these communities out there that are really passionate and micro almost, and then get into those communities with a really cool value prop. And there your content is much more shareable and you're getting to more and more people because these community members behave differently in this aspect of their life. I think what's funny is we probably all have that. Like, you know, we probably all have these little pockets where we're much more likely to share topically, right? So if we're talking about soccer equipment, maybe I'm much more likely to share because I spent most of my life playing soccer. If we're talking about weightlifting stuff, maybe like we're more likely to share stuff, share, share concepts with our with each other. If we're talking about like health stuff and supplements and vitamins, maybe we share a lot about that and our thoughts about that. And so I thought that was a really interesting lens. It's like topically, can I channel my content to these really interesting communities that resonate um, and are they kind of behave differently than in their normal life? But if you're just be creating a humdrum content that you want random Joe to share with his random friends with, no, with none of those mm-hmm. angles, it might be harder to get that to go viral. That's a great... That's a great point. And since we're coming down to the end here, I thought it might maybe make sense to transition to the final group, which is just sort of like talking about uh, channel distribution, some interesting thoughts there. I mean, just some of the thoughts were uh, things I really hadn't considered in much depth or assigning a vocabulary to these sorts of things that they remember we would always sort of think about, but the idea of sort of like matching monopolizing I thought was kind of interesting moment uh, and and mindset but uh, curious what you thought was most interesting Um, Preston when do you have to jump at 30 oh in one minute okay (laughs) well I think the big takeaway that I had in this was um, the way that reach and frequency are being redefined and even like the media landscape is being redefined by tools like Facebook and Google where like when you look at the frequency on your Facebook campaign that's not what we think of as frequency let's so let's say I mm-hmm. set a frequency cap of 10 or you know mm-hmm. 2 whatever um, that actually means that I don't want my average frequency to get better than 2 but for any given user my frequency could be 100 or it could be 0 you know <laughs> and so Totally. It doesn't map with what we traditionally think about as frequency of like, I don't want anybody to see my ads so frequently that it becomes annoying. That's not the control you have because one of the tools that media companies have is to serve lots of impressions to people who are very likely to make a purchase to show high ROAS. Right. So frequency is their ally, right? If they can serve more frequent, if they can if they can sell you more more impressions to the same buyer who's really likely to buy, your ROAS is going up. If they know this guy, he's just unlikely to buy. Incrementality may be there, but he's unlikely to buy. He's going to drop the ROAS on the campaign. I'm going to serve zeros to that guy. And so it's something to just be careful of with frequency and like thinking about frequency and aggregate, particularly when you're looking at social platforms, Google, anybody who's doing these aggregated views. In fact, like the only way to get mm. that is like to know exactly when your media is running. And this is like the benefit of good old fashioned like broadcast. I yeah. know what my frequency is because I'm running it today and then I'm running it tomorrow and I'm running it the next day. And so in the next seven days, I'll have three, a frequency of exactly three for everybody who watched this. No one could get more, no one can get less. 
And so there's nuance to this that I've always found tricky, and I'm hoping advertisers or the, the, the media companies respond to this and let us set user-level frequency caps instead of uh, average frequency caps. So well said. It also, you start to get into, I think, a theme that maybe we should spend another pod, whole pod talking about, just this idea of <clears throat> whether it be ROAS versus incrementality or just sort of like the conflicts that... that uh, arise through the different experiences that we've had where you clearly want numbers to look good, but uh, it's a little slightly different to answer the question, was that incremental? <clears throat> so totally separate topic there. The one other that I thought was somewhat interesting, and I don't even know how to think about this from a tactical implementation perspective, but was this idea of monopolizing the channel. So if you're in a category let's just say men's tiny shorts and there's this mega brand that's been around for a hundred years and they own broadcast TV. If I'm understanding correctly, what this is saying is, okay, when they zig, you zag, you should then go and become the dominant tiny short seller on radio or something else like that so that you could own that channel as I guess that the so what is that it might get you incrementally more value than if you were to just sort of tag along on broadcast TV. But anyways, I thought that was somewhat interesting. You want to own the channel for your category is, I think, a message that they were trying to put out there. What do you think? Yeah, that's a great call out. Yeah, I, I, it's an interesting thing to try and tactically implement um, just because media is so wide. But yeah, if you're like the first one, you can be the TikTok brand or the radio brand or the, the brand that I always hear on certain podcasts. Um, right. And so it's probably, there's, there's like, it's basically like how to build memory structures, which is like getting into human psychology. Yeah. And one of those ways is anytime I listen to X or anytime I watch X, I see this brand and thus they become paired in my memory. And the fact that TikTok is so memorable, okay, now this brand is also memorable because I associate them with TikTok. There's another brand that I associate with TV and awesome TV ads. You're never going to earn that spot of that association because they're spending a billion bucks. But maybe you can get these kind of smaller upstart channels that you're taking a bit of a bet on that that grows and that that, that memory salience grows. But when it does, boy, howdy, you've got a hit. Yep, absolutely. So in, in summary, Tom, how would you... Uh, put a bow on this and, and leave our listeners with uh, one or two things that they can take into their brand in, in their team meeting this, this, uh, this Monday afternoon. Um, so if I'm a brand owner thinking about chapter 10, I think there are tactically a few things I'm doing. First is I'm doing a free exploration of, as in free no cost exploration of what do people think about me? What are the major themes that people associate with my brand? Am I sitting in competence, community, or contentment, or some uh, variation of those? Second, how do people buy my product? Are they buying my product habitually and they're recognizing packaging and operating explicitly off of system one thinking? Or is there something more nuanced? Like digitally often, that's not the case, right? They need to have a lot, they need to go out of their way to find your product and brand. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a little bit more of an inspired purchase. Um, and so understanding the why, why do, why do people buy um, uh, triggers um, is really important. Um, and making sure you don't um, belie those in your creative. Um, 
thinking about building creative to be platformed in communities and by big accounts is a really cool concept. Um, the other one that we didn't talk about too much, but is, is creative. It stands out building attention, mm -hmm. um, being unique. Those are all really important elements. And I thought like one of the interesting things from this chapter was the idea of, yeah, play into what they believe about your business and the problems you solve, but add this unique insight, add this unique twist. And that's really what creativity is just a random, completely foreign concept, not always right. the most creative, but something that's related, but uniquely insightful or the clever twist on something that is familiar, really, really powerful. Um, and so I would be, I would have creative takes that address how people perceive my brand currently, and then have a unique take on that, a unique twist that gets it into platforming and gets it into um, micro communities that are more shareable. Um, and then in terms of distribution, I think there's some of this that I, that I would, um, I, some of the ideas may be a little bit out of date because I think a lot of distribution is starting to get embedded algorithmically into these platforms. And I think sometimes right. that's for the better and sometimes that's for the worse. Um, and so from a distribution perspective, I would make sure that you're thinking about your conversion events. What conversion mm -hmm. events are you optimizing towards? We think about social. What are you optimizing for? And how would Facebook's and Google's and TikTok's algorithms do you dirty in that? You know, right. no offense to them, but how would they overserve media to show higher ROAS? Would they over-target certain audiences that have high proclivity to buy? And Facebook, remember, these, these platforms don't know causality. They don't right. know incrementality. They only know association. And so algorithmically, it's a very difficult thing to code an algorithm that is pushing incrementality when it's like, no, I, I know these revenue streams are gonna happen. I wanna serve revenue, I wanna serve impressions into those. So I would just be really careful with when that can go wrong. Um, and that's my biggest thought that came out yeah. of that chapter. That is gold. What do you, what do you think, Preston? What would you, to tie a bow on this, to summarize chapter 10 from uh, Kellogg on branding in a hyper-connected world, what, what drops of wisdom, actionable nuggets do you have for our listeners? You said it perfectly. And maybe to even try to sum it up in even a more efficient manner, it, it would be, the following three things. One, change the way you think from the message I want to get out there to exactly an understanding of exactly how my message is being received. Number two, as we think about creative and what's going to actually work, it's less about getting someone in their feed to click the share button and share it to their whole audience. It's more about framing the thing to where your audience is actually the channel or outlet or huge megaphone who for them, it is useful to share your content, distribute your content. And yes. And for number three, you could think less about, I just got to get as many impressions as I possibly can. And you can think a little bit about how can I own a particular channel in my category in such a way where that then builds an additional memory structure. Hey, you're the brand I found out about on radio. You're the brand I found out about on podcast. And that then becomes yet another connector that you have with that brand. So with that, that is chapter 10 of Kellogg on branding. Episode 5 of the Brand Builders Podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week.
Adios. Booyah.